Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Loyal listeners slash viewers will remember uh, my guest uh, this time because he was actually on the first 10% Happier Podcast ever. Uh, that was uh, he was sitting uh, beside a guy you may have heard of uh, who goes by the name of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, and his name is Richard Davidson, Professor Richard Davidson. Everybody calls him Richie, um, and he is uh, the guy who's really been at the tip of the spear in terms of using neuroscience to look at uh, what contemplative practices like meditation do to your brain. And uh, I think it's safe to say that if Richie uh, hadn't done his work, I would never have started meditating because um, uh, for skeptics, it's the science that gets you over the hump uh, and gets you to start meditating, at least at least for me. Although interestingly, well, and he and I will talk about this, I actually think, um, I like to say this, you, you might start to meditate because you think you're, uh, you know, because you see the science is intriguing that you can change your brain uh, because, uh, through meditation. But... Um, I don't think you keep meditating because you think your prefrontal cortex may be changing. I think you keep meditating because you're less of, well, usually I use the word that begins with A here, but you're less of a jerk to yourself and others. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, that, if, if, forgive my slight digression there, but R- Richie's a friend. He's a really, really interesting guy, not only in terms of the work that he's done that has been truly pioneering. Uh, at the, by the way, just to give uh, uh, props to his colleagues, he runs a center called the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin, where they do a lot of amazing work. But so you'll hear about his work. But also, he's a longtime meditator, and he's taken some serious, um, some seriously interesting uh, paths uh, within the meditation world. So we're going to talk about all that. But first, Richie, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Oh, it's a delight to be here, Dan. Thank you. Congratulations, you're a new grandpa. I am. Really exciting phase of my life. You know, you don't look you don't look like a grandpa. Just for the record, <laughs> um, this is a really interesting thing about you and, and this whole group that is sometimes referred to as the uh, Jubus. You know, these uh, north of let's say north of fifty five AARP range uh, uh, Jewish <laughs> kids, mostly from New York, who are all um, who are all got interested in Buddhism. Is do you all look ten to fifteen years younger than you actually are? Uh, and and we, so we'll talk a little bit about whether there's any uh, biological basis for that, given your contemplative practice that spans many, many decades. But first, before we do all that, how did you start meditating? When, where, why? Uh, I started really in graduate school. I uh, was at uh, Harvard. Uh, at Harvard. In the early 70s, late 60s? In the uh, early 70s. And uh, I had the great fortune of being around some people who just seemed like they were nice people. They were people I wanted to be around. There was something about them that attracted me. Uh, They had a kind of magic sauce that I wanted some of myself. Uh, And I learned that these were all people who who were uh, very involved with meditation. One of those people went on to be and actually was at that time becoming a famous spiritual teacher, Ram Dass, uh, who, of course, used to, be, Alpert, yeah. used to be Richard Alpert, um, a, someone who was on the faculty at Harvard and then summarily fired for his psychedelic research. Uh, and so I met him and a number of other people, and they were all meditating. Uh, and I 
thought that this was something that uh, seemed extremely interesting and potentially really important and attractive. And I was sufficiently interested to go off after my second year of graduate school to India uh, for the first time to explore and to find some meditation teachers that I can actually study with. The faculty at Harvard, this is in the Harvard Psychology Department, most of them thought I was going off the deep end, and I think two-thirds of them were convinced I would never come back. Mm. Um, I was pretty sure I would come back uh, because I really never um, swerved in my commitment to science. Uh, But uh, I did go off for three months, and uh, I went on my first serious meditation retreat during that period of time. And uh, that was what started it for me. And uh, I came back with a fervent aspiration to pursue research uh, on meditation. I thought that uh, this was something incredibly important for Western psychology and Western science. Uh, and that's when it all began. So some interesting things happened when you came back, which I want to talk about. But just just so I know, where, where did you go for those three months? Where did you go? Who did you study with in India? Uh, I was mostly uh, – I spent part of the time in Sri Lanka – uh, and uh, with some forest monks. Uh, I was actually with Dan Goleman at that time. D- Daniel Goleman is the author of a book called Emotional Intelligence, also part of this cabal. I don't think you guys like the term, but I'm going to use it anyway, of the Jubus. Um, and uh, and you and Danny remain very close to this day. Yes, we do. Uh, and so we actually were living together in Kandy, Sri Lanka, and going off and meeting with forest monks uh, in the Theravadan tradition in Sri Lanka. Uh, And then I went to India and studied with Goenka. Goenka uh, is a, or was, he died very recently, a Buddhist meditation teacher in the Theravadan tradition. And uh, I did my first serious meditation retreat with him uh, at a small hill station in the Himalayas, uh, not far from Dharamsala. Home of the Dalai Lama. Um, so you got home and you started discussing with your mentors in the in, in at Harvard uh, your desire to study the impact of meditation on the brain and the psyche. Yeah, and I was just so incredibly naive. Um, one of my professors was someone who studies psychopathology, mental disorders, and basically looked at me and said, "Do you know that the?" that one's dress is really often an indicator of their psychiatric illness. And, of course, I was dressed in these crazy clothes that we all got in India. Uh, and uh, he was, Like what kind of clothes are we talking about here? You know, the, the baggy pants and um, flowy shirts. And he was just – and I had long hair in those days. And so he was basically looking at me and clearly saying that I'm nuts uh, and uh, that this was uh, not – a particularly appropriate way for me to behave or for uh, me to pursue serious scientific research. But for so it, it's interesting. You, you said he was an expert in psychopathology. Am I, am I wrong in 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 my assumption that actually most of the study of uh, psychology and or neuroscience um, for, for during its history has been around uh, problems, disorders, as opposed to healthy mind states. And that's true. And uh, I, and I would say that that's broadly true. We, we have an entity in Washington, in, in Maryland, called the National Institutes of Health, 
But really, it's, it should be labeled the National Institutes of Disease. It's mostly focused on illness and uh, not really on health, despite the fact that the World Health Organization's definition of health includes well-being and uh, emotional and spiritual qualities. Uh, that is part of the, the WHO definition of health. And, and they clearly distinguish between the absence of illness and the presence of, of health. Uh, and so much of psychology has been focused up until, I think, quite recently on the negative side of things and on psychopathology. Uh, so you you had these conversations, un, deeply unsuccessful conversations with your mentors at Harvard, and, and you actually – you kind of allowed them to deter you for a bit, didn't you? Not from the meditation, but from the study of the meditation. I did. So we actually, I published a few papers which are never cited anymore that were published in the late 1970s and early 1980s on meditation, and that was it. Uh, and then they basically shut it down. Uh, I was a dutiful student, and I did, I really did want, and I, I still am unswervingly committed to a scientific career. And so I wanted to do what I needed to do to become a serious scientist. And so uh, uh, I, as I often say, became very much a closet meditator and didn't talk to any of my colleagues about my interest in meditation after this very early period when I tried to pursue it. But I ran into one obstacle after another in a very formidable way. And it was clear to me that this was not going to go anywhere. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. Lidocare has created a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS.
I was just thinking as you were talking about your story, there's so many similarities. You know, Mark Epstein has been a previous guest and is a close friend of mine, um, has a similar story about being a closet meditator. Um, so many of the people of your generation have this story. And yet the fact that you, well, first of all, the and you fact know, Mark and I were friends uh, at Harvard back at in the day. Yes. yes, he's part of this uh, aforementioned cabal. <laughs> um, uh, you, you, A, you kept meditating and B, you ultimately came out of the closet and actually, you know, are the collectively the sine qua non for, for what is now a really phenomenal but not uncomplicated boom in meditation and mindfulness in the culture. And, and uh, so I salute you for that uh, because had you not done that, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I, I attribute a lot of it to uh, the Dalai Lama, who played a major role in me coming out of the closet and encouraging serious scientific research in this area. And um, uh, that was pivotal in sort of the shift which occurred in the mid-1990s. How did that happen? Where where were you and how did you come in contact with the, the Dalai Lama? Well, I first met him uh, in Dharamsala, India, where he lives, and he invited me to come meet with him. Uh, he had heard about me through some colleagues uh, at Mind and Life. Mind and Life is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1987 uh, by the Dalai Lama and Francisco Varela. Francisco was a uh, very well-known neuroscientist who uh, imagined doing this kind of work, but never actually got to do it. He died prematurely of liver cancer uh, in 2001. Uh, uh, but Francisco and the Dalai Lama founded this organization in 1987. And uh, after a few years, the Dalai Lama learned enough about modern neuroscience to understand the potential of neuroscience contributing to uh, furthering the interest in these areas. Uh, and so he invited me to meet with him at his residence in India to talk about the possibility of doing serious neuroscientific research on Tibetan practitioners who spent years training their mind. And at that meeting, he challenged me and he said, you've been using the tools of modern neuroscience to mostly study anxiety and depression and fear, all these negative qualities. Why can't you use those same tools to study qualities like kindness and compassion and equanimity? And I didn't have a very good answer for him. And it was a total wake-up call for me and really uh, was a pivotal catalyst uh, and as my dear friend John Kabat-Zinn, another member of this cabal, uh, um, said to me, he said, my life at that moment went through what he called an orthogonal rotation. Your life. My life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it really just completely reoriented my career. And really since that time, I have been dedicating my life to this work. And this, I really feel, is why I'm here on the planet. So what, what what did you do first? What were the first studies you, you conducted? Well, uh, we, we did uh, – the very first study that we conducted was actually something in collaboration with John Kabat-Zinn where we did the first randomized controlled trial. I'm just going to jump in for a second. Just for people who don't know who John Kabat-Zinn is, I'm always, uh, I, I, I remembered late to do this, so I apologize to everybody. 
John Kabat-Zinn is one of the most famous meditation teachers and proponents on earth. Uh, he's written a, a number of amazing books, as has Richie, and I'll list some of Richie's books toward the end of the podcast. Um, uh, he, he, John is, was on 60 Minutes recently, and he in, basically invented something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is derived from Buddhism but really strips away the metaphysical claims and the religious lingo and can be taught in an entirely secular context. And that form that has been another huge uh, contributing factor uh, to the blossoming of scientific research around meditation because it it, it uh, provided a protocol an eight week protocol where people take this class and that can then be studied. Yes, and mindfulness based stress reduction is probably the most commonly taught form of mindfulness meditation at academic medical centers worldwide. Uh, and so it has really penetrated particularly the medical establishment. Uh, and, uh, and because of that, it's had a, an enormous impact. But it turned out that uh, when we, when John and I were talking in the late 1990s, at that point, there hadn't been a single randomized controlled trial of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, there had been some scientific studies, but they all suffered from many serious methodological limitations. And so we decided to do the very first randomized controlled trial of mindfulness-based stress reduction that had ever been done. Um, and uh, we did it with employees at a high-tech corporation in Madison, Wisconsin. And John Kabat-Zinn felt sufficiently strongly about the importance of this study that he actually flew out weekly to Madison for 10 consecutive weeks, and he himself was the instructor uh, of this course because wow. he wanted to ensure that it was taught um, at the highest standards. Could be worse. Madison's a pretty cool place. Yes. Uh, so it was wonderful uh, having him out for 10 consecutive weeks like that. Uh, uh, and this, the paper uh, based on that study was published in 2003. And uh, here's a confession. First of all, the fact, it is my most widely cited scientific paper that I've ever published. Wow. Uh, and so if you look at Google Analytics, uh, at the citation counts, uh, it is the it has more citations uh, in the scientific literature than any of my other scientific papers. The confession is that it's it was a it was a um, I think a uh, a really important study because there hadn't been uh, a randomized controlled trial prior to that. But it, it, it itself has many limitations. Uh, and so while it's my most widely cited paper, I certainly wouldn't consider it my best. What, what did it show? It showed that eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction produces a systematic change in certain aspects of brain function that is associated with better emotion regulation. And it also showed uh, what we, uh, that after eight weeks of meditation, what we did is we gave people in the meditation group, and we had a group of people who were in a control group. And this was a group of people that wanted to receive MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, but they were told that uh, they couldn't accommodate the full group in the initial um, training and that they would be trained at a later point in time, but they were asked to go through the assessments uh, at the same time that the group that was given the mindfulness meditation was given the assessments. So we call that a wait list control group. They were waiting to mm -hmm. get their intervention till a later point in time. So we gave all of them at the end of this eight-week period a flu shot. And 
an ordinary flu shot, the only difference was that uh, from the way you get it typically is we took blood samples before and after the flu shot was given at specific intervals to quantify the antibody titers mounted in response to the vaccine. This gives us a quantitative index of how effective the vaccine is working. Turns out that when you receive a vaccine, there's a lot of variability among people in how effective it is. And uh, if you're exposed to the same level of flu virus, some people will have a lot of immunity conferred by the flu shot and other people will have much less. And so we wanted to determine if the eight weeks of meditation influenced their response to the vaccine. And amazingly, it did. Uh, the meditators actually showed a boost in their antibody titers, which was the first time anyone had ever shown this. Uh, and so that was an important finding because it suggested that the changes go beyond simply reports of greater calmness or less um, anxiety, but they also extend into important biological functions that may play an important role in our mental and physical health. So I still get sick. Does that mean I'm a terrible meditator, <laughs> or is that because I live with a EF5 tornado, 18-month-old vector for disease? Uh, I Both. suspect it's the latter. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, I, um, when my kids were young, my rate of illness was far more frequent than it is now. And I attribute it primarily to the difference in who I'm living with. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, it, you know, I think it's important for listeners to understand that this is not something that's going to cure illnesses. Um, meditation was not originally designed to cure illnesses. And so the extent to which it impacts these kinds of biological processes, I think, is interesting and important. But uh, certainly uh, our view of this is that it can modulate a person's uh, symptoms. It can modulate their receptivity to certain illnesses. But this is not going to be a cure-all for everything. And I think it's, it's really important to appreciate that. That's why we call this thing 10% happier. Uh, no overpromising. That's what I like about the meditation world when it, when it behaves properly. Is there's not a lot of overpromising. Just so everybody gets a sense of the breadth of your research, where did you go next after this first paper that you say is flawed but was unquestionably very successful? Well, uh, um, the next thing that we did, so that paper came out in 2003. Uh, at the same time, we began a very, very unusual experiment. We began that experiment roughly in uh, 1999, a few years after my first meeting with the Dalai Lama. It took us a while to sort of get to this stage. But we began a very unusual study that involved bringing extremely long-term meditators, kind of the Olympic athletes of meditation, uh, people who've practiced a ridiculous amount. Uh, uh, the average number of hours of lifetime practice is 34,000 hours wow. among this group. Wow. Uh, they're professional meditators, if you if you will. Uh, uh, they don't have a day job. Um, and we f most of them live in Asia. Uh, we flew them from India and Nepal, where most of them lived. And we flew them to Madison, Wisconsin, where they spent uh, roughly a week in residence. And we probed and tested them in all kinds of different ways during their time with us. 
And uh, the very first paper we published from that group of practitioners was published in 2004, and it came out in a journal called The Proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences. And that's a very prestigious journal. And uh, the journal has been around more than 100 years, and this was the very first time in the august history of this journal that a paper on meditation had ever appeared. Mm. Uh, and that, would, that got an enormous amount of attention. Uh, uh, and that kind of cracked open the area, I think, because it showed that there were systematic differences in the brain of these individuals that were really unusual. Like... Uh, so what we did in this study was really simple study. We simply asked these people to meditate, and then we asked them f- for certain periods of time not to meditate, and we were looking at the difference in their brain when they were meditating and when they were not meditating. How? Uh, MRI, fMRI, EEG, uh, what were you using? So we used both EEG and MRI, fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. The first paper that came out was based on the EEG findings. So that's just electrodes on the head. Electrodes on the head. And so we had a whole um, glom of electrodes. We had 256 electrodes on the head. And what we saw was the presence of gamma oscillations. These are very fast frequency oscillations that are about 40 cycles per second. Uh, and we saw them at very high amplitude, and we saw them for very long periods of time. These gamma oscillations are very well studied in modern neuroscience. We know a lot about the underlying neural basis of these gamma oscillations, mostly from sort of very hard-nosed molecular animal research. In humans, uh, the presence of these gamma oscillations has been observed many times before, but typically when they are seen, they're typically seen for less than one second. They're very, very short, very brief bursts, and they're typically seen when different elements of a percept get bound together. Uh, so, for example, if you, if I ask you to imagine um, biting into uh, a juicy apple, just imagine that. Um, you have the visual image, you have the sort of tactile feel of what it is to bite, you have the gustatory taste sensations, you have the smell um, you have the sound of the crunching. There's a lot of different sensory elements that, that together form this interesting percept or um, image. And at the moment, they sort of all come together. In, um, in, in a typical person, you see a burst of gamma, and it typically lasts for under one second. So is, is, is gamma then associated with kind of positive uh not necessarily positive, but it's associated with lots of different things coming together, uh, like an insight. Um, I see. Where, uh, and it's typically, in, in an untrained mind, it's typically very, very short. Uh, the, other, the, the other context where you see gamma is if you're problem-solving uh, some difficult problem, and all of a sudden, the answer just occurs to you. You just comes into your mind and you, you know it's right. That moment, which we've all had, they're unfortunately quite rare, uh, but that moment, and you can, you can create this experimentally in the lab with certain kinds of tasks uh, where you can, you can increase the likelihood of those moments. But at that moment, you see a burst of gamma. Um, and what we saw in these individuals is 
not a burst of gamma, but long durations for minutes while they're meditating, which was crazy because we thought that our, actually, we thought that there was a problem in our recording equipment because <laughs> uh, this had never been seen in a human brain before. So what do you think is going on experientially when they're having these gamma bursts? I guess they're not even bursts. They're no, sort of gamma runs. I think what they're what they're they they're doing a kind of meditation that involves what we call open awareness, uh, where they are not focused on a single object, but their um, their perceptual world, their phenomenological world, is expansive, uh, and uh, they are including the external environment and the internal environment in their consciousness. and Instead of just focusing on the feeling of their breath coming in and going out, they're just letting their senses rip. Whatever comes into their five senses and plus their thinking and emotions, they're just, they're just noticing. Exactly. All channels are open. Uh, and uh, the, the phenomenological reports of these individuals is their awareness at, at those times has um, two important qualities. One is uh, clarity, a real sense of clarity, and and uh, and also accompanying that, they they talk about it as luminosity, where it's just very vivid. And the other element is uh, vastness or expansiveness, where they they report awareness of just a, an enormous range of phenomena at once. Uh, and so, uh, what we see with these gamma oscillations is not just their presence, but they're also highly synchronized among different parts of the brain. Uh, and we think that this is a neural echo of this kind of vastness and panoramic awareness, which they are reporting during this particular style of meditation. And to get there, do you have to be a meditation uh, Olympia, uh, Olympian, or can, can any of us uh, have this kind of gamma uh, jag? I would say that any of us can have it, and uh, we may not be able to sustain it. That's the difference. So these individuals can sustain it and can turn it on pretty much at will. Uh, I think for you and I, it's more likely that we can show this, but um, but a thought will come into our mind which we'll get lost in for a couple of moments. And so the ability to sustain it is something that I think really requires much more practice. And for them, the thought can come and go without them getting on the train and you know going a few stops. Exactly. It doesn't perturb them at all. It's like the, the, the metaphor that they often use is their awareness is like a clear blue sky, and occasionally there'll be a cloud, which is like a thought, and the cloud will appear, it may move, and then disappear. And it doesn't disturb the, the, the clear blue sky. This does speak, though, even at the JV level where somebody like me or I don't know, I would imagine most of the listeners would be, uh, maybe even the freshman team, um, it does speak to the fu- one of the fundamental shifts or maybe the fundamental shift that happens through meditation, which is we live most of our lives when we're untrained in thought. But in fact, uh, our senses are ripping all the time. There is a perceptual reality. Uh, which is that we're not paying attention to. We're not paying attention to. So that everything from the feeling of your phone in your hand, your butt on the seat, the sounds uh, uh, vibrating in your ears, uh, the sights that you're seeing, these are all you, – you can kind of relax back into this and out of the thinking mind, and actually it's a source of enormous relief. Yes, absolutely. So as I'm talking to you now, I can be completely aware of the feelings of sitting here, of my sit bones on the chair – 
uh, of my feet on the floor and not have it disrupt my ability to completely focus on the details of the conversation, but be aware in the kind of background uh, of, of all that's going on. But so importantly, this is not, again, just for people who wear robes and have to be flown in from India and Nepal, uh, if you want to meet with them, that, that th- this is a, our birthright. We, have, we all have the capacity to do this. Another word for it would be just being mindful. Um, it's just about training the mind to do it. Right. And I would say it's really also about a, another way to phrase it is recognizing a, a kind of innate propensity that we all have. And when we recognize it and become more familiar with it, we can uh, sustain it and, and strengthen it. Uh, and so I would say that it's something, at least in an uh, in incipient form, is, is within all of us from the start. Uh, But it's kind of like language. In order for language to develop, uh, which is a biological propensity that we all have as human beings, we need to be raised in a linguistic community. We need to have it nurtured. And the same thing for qualities like awareness and also for compassion. Which is another thing you've studied, compassion, which we, we will, we should and will talk about. But let me just ask a question about this study. Uh, th- th- this experiment that you were these experiments that you were running with these people, these uh, Olympic athletes uh, of meditation. One of the questions that sometimes gets asked is, are their brains different because they've meditated, or are their brains different and therefore they meditate? Yeah, <clears throat> so it's that's a really important question, and the honest answer is we we cannot answer that question from the work that we've done with the long-term meditators because it's inherently confounded. Right, you can't go back in time. Can't go back in time. And also, it's not unreasonable to think that someone who makes a decision to dedicate their life in this way and to become a monastic, they're, they're likely to have been different from the start. Uh, they're not... Most people don't make that choice, right? Uh, and so... Uh, uh, so from a scientific perspective, and this is something I think your question really is pointing to and something that we realized early on from a scientific perspective, even though working with these monastics that we were flying in from India, there was a certain allure and mystique and really it was cool to do this research from a scientific perspective. It's fundamentally unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. I mean, we needed to start there because we wanted to convince ourselves that there really was a there there. If we didn't see any difference between these individuals and untrained individuals, the likelihood of us finding something with eight weeks of mindfulness training would be unreasonable. Uh, and so we needed to see if we can get a signal there. But once we did, then our interest in doing that um, really is not as, I mean, we're, we're still interested for certain kinds of questions, but our focus has much more been on work that is scientifically A, more rigorous, and B, has immediate practical benefit. So walk us through some of the studies you've done since that one. What are you looking, What are you excited about? Well, to give one example, a study that was published not too long ago, uh, we took people and we advertised in the community for a study where people were going to be taught an intervention that's designed to cultivate well-being. That's what they were told. Uh, and they were told that they were going to be randomly assigned to one of two interventions, both of which are designed to cultivate well-being. Uh, And so that's how this study was advertised. And what we did is we randomly assigned people to two weeks 
of compassion training, and I'll say something about that in a minute. And um, that was one group. And another group was randomly assigned to two weeks of cognitive therapy training that came straight from cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy is one of the most empirically well-validated psychological treatments for depression and anxiety, and generally a treatment that can improve well-being. And they were structurally matched so that Uh, There was the same amount of training. It was delivered in the same way, the same time of day. Everything about it was perfectly matched. Uh, And we can genuinely say that both both interventions are designed to cultivate well-being. And so that was the experiment, basically. And before they went through the two weeks of training, we scanned their brains. After they went through the two weeks of training, we scanned their brains again, and then we got a bunch of psychological measures in addition. But that's the kind of study where any changes that we see that's specific to one group, we can say definitively that it's because of what they were doing, because we randomly assigned them so that when they started off, we confirmed that there were no differences between these two groups when they started. They were all the same. Um, what did uh, you find? So what we found is that the brains of people who are given two weeks of compassion training look different after, um, after the two weeks than the brains of people who are given the cognitive reappraisal training. I didn't let you describe what compa- compassion training is. Yeah, so I'll say, let me say a little bit about that. So with compassion training, what we do is we uh, ask people to start with a loved one, someone who is a close family member or very close friend, or it could even be a pet, uh, and just envision a time in their life when they may have been suffering. Uh, And we ask them to then uh, bring that person or being into their mind and heart and cultivate the strong aspiration that they be relieved from that suffering. And we have simple phrases that they use, like, may you be free from suffering, may you experience joy and ease, and they silently repeat these phrases to themselves. And they're asked to notice whatever visceral sensations may be present. They're also instructed to say the phrases authentically with with emotion and not to simply repeat them cognitively. That's basically the instruction. And um, we have them start with a loved one. They then move on to themselves. Uh, They then move on to what we call a stranger, which is someone, the way we define a stranger is someone whose face they recognize, but uh, they don't know much about them. It could be a neighbor. And they just really don't know much about the neighbor, someone who lives in their building. Uh, um, uh, but uh, you see them, you recognize them, but you don't know much about their life. Uh, and just envision a time in their life when they may have been suffering, even if you don't know that, that about it. Um, then we have them move on to a category that uh, a famous Tibetan lama named Mingyur Rinpoche that I'm doing an event with tonight said. Who's, who's been a guest on the show. Because of your your insistence? Uh, Thank you. Uh, And um, he has said in print that one hour doing this practice with a difficult person is equivalent to 100 hours doing this practice with Mm. all the other categories. Uh, And so a difficult person is someone who pushes your buttons. And we we instruct people, don't pick the most difficult person. Pick someone. Don't don't start with Hitler. (laughs) Yeah, start with someone who just uh, is mildly irritating. Right. Uh, and so um, we have them do this, and we we underscore the importance of doing this really authentically, bringing them into your mind and heart in an authentic way and going through this process. And then finally, we have them move on to as many individuals, as many people, beings as they can. And that's the process, and we, we have them do this for 30 minutes a day for two weeks. 
Uh, and they, the, actually, the practice is delivered online. Uh, and uh, it, it enabled us to monitor exactly what they were doing uh, and to check on how much they were doing. Uh, and so they logged on to a protected website and received this practice. And by the way, anyone who wishes can go to our center website, which is Center for Healthy Minds. And uh, the same exact practice that we used in this study is available for free download from our center website. So um, any listener can try it for themselves and see if it might be helpful. That's great. And so more about what you found? So what we found is um, we found that, first of all, we gave them these hard-nosed measures to measure altruistic behavior, pro-social behavior. And the best kind of behavioral evidence for this in the laboratory comes, believe it or not, from uh, paradigms and, and methods that have been developed by economists uh, from the field of behavioral and neuroeconomics. Uh, and this field has created these really interesting ways of looking at pro-social behavior that primarily uses financial um, uh, uh, incentives. And so people are actually giving away real money. Uh, there's no deception in these studies. It's all real. And we use lots of money to jack up the stakes. Uh, and so uh, uh, the basic measure in this case was how much money is a person willing to give their own money that they're earning in this experiment to render another transaction to be more fair. Uh, so uh, if if you observed one person getting screwed uh, in an interaction, are you willing to use some of your own money to make it a... Uh, more altru- make it a more um, fair interaction. Uh, that's basically what the measure reflects. And it's real money, and it's quite substantial. So people can spend up to $100 of money that they, that they can earn for themselves and actually uh, render this transaction to be more fair. <clears throat> um, and so what we found is that after two weeks of compassion training, people actually behaved more altruistically. Uh, than people who went through the two weeks of cognitive training. A lot more or, or, or a little <coughs> bit more? Um, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, about 15% more. Not nothing. Yeah. Uh, not nothing. And what about the changes, if any, to the brain? So there were systematic changes that we found in the brain, and those changes were primarily to two circuits. One circuit that we know is involved in empathy, the ability to take another person's perspective, and the other circuit is involved in reward and positive emotion where we found increased activation in those circuits. And interestingly, we found that those people who change the most in each of these circuits actually behave the more altruistically. So it predicted the extent to which they behaved altruistically. Now, one of the important limitations of this study, just to sort of be totally transparent and honest about this is we did not follow these people up um, systematically after this experiment. Uh, And so we're not making any strong claims about how long these changes are going to last. I'm frequently asked about that. Uh, And the honest answer is we don't know. But my conjecture is they're not likely to last unless a person continues to practice. And it's kind of like physical exercise. If you went to the gym for two weeks and had a really great trainer and really got buffed up, I'm sure most people would notice that it's helpful and that they can feel a difference after two weeks. But if they stop exercising at that point, no one is going to think that those changes are going to endure. And I think it's the same with these kinds of skills. So 
I'm going to say something um, and just correct any errors about in what I'm going to say. That one of the, the – there are many important headlines out of this field of contemplative neuroscience, as it's sometimes called, of which you are a leader, if not the leader. There are, there are many amazing conclusions to be drawn based on this work, of which we've had just a tiny sample in this conversation thus far. One of the big ones, though, is this idea of neuroplasticity. For a long time – the dog, the received dogma in the neuroscience world was that the brain stops changing at a certain age, like in your mid-20s or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what you've shown is that actually we can change the brain at any time. We, the, the brain is changing. It's the, I think you've described it as the organ of experience. Um, is changing in response to the world. If I learned uh, uh, violin right now, parts of my brain would change. To, uh, but you, but what you're doing in meditation is training certain sort of attributes, um, and uh, and that to me is a is an kind of an earth shattering conclusion that we can change. Um, so did I did I say this correctly? Perfectly. Okay. And one of the things we often say is that the brain is changing wittingly or unwittingly. Right. You might as well be in it, control of it. Exactly. So what is the least amount? I'm sure you get this conversation, this question all the time, because I get it all the time. What is the, 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 the dosage question? What is the least amount of meditation I can do to get some of the advertised benefits? You know, it's uh, it's a very difficult question to to answer from a scientific perspective. We know there are published studies which show that as little as eight minutes of meditation can actually produce a measurable objective change. But again, it it says nothing about how long these changes will last. Uh, And so I think my own view is that you can probably get a change pretty quickly. Certainly uh, after uh, 30 minutes, you can see a change, but it says nothing about the extent to which those changes would last. Right. So it leads to a question I've been thinking about a lot because um, I'm now, oddly, a, a small businessman because I've been doing this app uh, that teaches people how to meditate with uh, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, who are the guiding teachers on the thing. And and I've always been of the view that what I tell tell people, I'm, I'm, it's dangerous that I'm out there talking about meditation because I really don't know uh, enough. But what I often tell people is you should do it every day. Uh, but we've noticed that our active users on the app aren't doing it every day. They're doing it maybe the best, you know, four, five, six, some seven days a week. Do, what is your advice to people? Should you be doing it every day or is four or five times a week enough? Uh, my advice is that it's particularly at the early stages, it's really good to get into a daily habit. Uh, and one of the things that we often suggest is that people be asked – how much time do you think you can actually practice and do it every day? Mm. Uh, you choose. Uh, and even if it's 30 seconds, uh, what we'd like people to do is pick a number that they choose themselves and then make a 30-day commitment uh, and do it every day for 30 days, whatever that number is. Uh, it doesn't matter how small that number is, but do it every day. Don't be surprised if this functionality shows up on my app because <laughs> that's a great way to do it. And we talk a lot about UX, user experience, and how to structure this so that we can create a stab, uh, help people establish a habit. Um, anyway, uh, very interesting. Let me ask you some other questions about the, this field of contemplative neuroscience because um, there's been lots of 
interesting little debates that it, that this field has gen- generated. One of them is that you, you know, you're very close with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I mean, as I said before, you were sitting next to him in our first podcast. We didn't let you talk much because um, that was appropriate. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Um, you're very close to the guy, um, and he's a religious leader. And uh, you've been criticized, on, as you've pointed out to me, on the front page of the New York Times by some of your uh, fellow travelers in the scientific community uh, for being so close with a religious figure and that this is viewed as inappropriate in some way. What's your, what's your pushback on that? Well, you know, I understand the concern. Uh, and uh, really, I, my pushback is simply that we are trying to do the science at the highest possible level with the most integrity. And uh, we're, we publish the work in in very high-profile scientific journals with very stringent peer review. And uh, the, the scientific evidence will get adjudicated in the scientific literature. Uh, we'll put it out there. No one believes a scientific finding unless it's replicated by others. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that the my relationship with the Dalai Lama has been an inspiration. He's been a real catalyst. Uh, we really look to him as a kind of public intellectual more than a religious figure, and he is um, one of the most vocal advocates for teaching these practices in a secular way. He, you know... The, uh, he often says that if we're going to reach the 7 billion people on this planet, uh, there are a lot of them who are, who are non-believers, many of them who are practitioners of many other religions. We need to present this in a way that's acceptable to anybody. Uh, and so we view this as, as simply training the mind uh, in a way which is uh, accessible to anyone, irrespective of their religious convictions. And I think it's possible to do that. I understand uh, the concerns that people have, and I do think we need to be super careful uh, uh, about it. And uh, some of our work involves extension to children and education, and we're working now in public schools. Uh, And so uh, uh, that's an area where uh, I think one needs to be especially cautious. And we try to do it in that way, and I think it's possible. But you you are a longtime dedicated Buddhist practitioner, um, and you are a public proponent for secular meditation. Uh, are you not rooting for a certain outcome in your studies? Uh, you know, that's a, a really important question. And this was exactly the question that was raised in this New York Times article to which you're alluding. And it basically said that how can Davidson be objective when he's admitted in public that he himself meditates? Uh, And that would be like telling a cardiologist who studies the effect of physical exercise on the heart that they can't do any physical exercise for the rest of their active career because they're biased. They um, uh, how can they possibly be objective if they admit that they do physical exercise or for that matter, someone who studies perception are are they going to stop perceiving? I mean, I think at a certain point I, I had a great time with that. Really, it was just fun. Uh, I actually believe that if you're going to study meditation scientifically, you've got to meditate yourself. Uh, and I've come out and said that. I think it's it's crazy to think that a person can actually study meditation and not be a meditator. Uh, and so I think it's actually mandatory. Uh, but I think there needs to be important firewalls, and I think you need to do it in a way that guards against bias. 
Uh, and uh, one of the wonderful things about science is that it very much is democratic. You put this stuff out there in scientific journals. You describe the methods in as careful and as detailed a way as you can. And if it's an important enough finding, people are going to want to replicate it. And if they find that it doesn't replicate, um, it's going to be a problem and people aren't going to believe it. Three of the most important studies that I'm most proud of that we've published are are non-replications. That is, our, our failures to find effects that we thought or others thought would be present in meditators. And so we've made a... Um, uh, a real commitment to do this in a way which is honest. Uh, And so we did a study, just to give a very specific example, uh, there's a phenomenon called introception. And introception involved, it means the experience of one's own internal bodily signals. And uh, many mindfulness practices involve mindfulness of the body, Uh, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of bodily sensations. And we thought this was kind of, so to speak, a no-brainer, that um, people would be much better at perceiving interceptive cues uh, if they've meditated. Uh, And so we did a study where there's an objective way of of measuring this. Um, I won't go through all the technical details, but it involves basically your accuracy in perceiving your own heartbeat as one example of an interceptive process. And we, so we measured this objectively. We also got measures of how confident the, the individuals were in their accuracy. Um, and so they just filled out a little questionnaire just telling us how confident, like on a seven-point scale. And what we found is that the meditators were really confident that they were doing this accurately, and they performed exactly at the same level as the non-meditators. They were equally terrible and absolutely no difference. And we really looked to see if there was a difference. I mean, we we thought we would find a difference. And we published that study. Right. So I I think that is all that all uh, that's all reassuring. I think it will be reassuring to skeptics. No, no question about it. But the other the other sort of debate that's uh, and there are a few others that 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 has emerged from um, from your field is um, about the quality of the science. You know, there was I, I'm not going to be able to say this chapter in verse, and you'll you'll correct me, no doubt. There there was a what's called a meta study where somebody people looked at. So all of the studies that are out there, or, or meta analysis, meta analysis, and uh, they found that actually there there wasn't. If you took the good studies, and there weren't that many of them, there there wasn't much of an effect or something like that of meditation. So that was kind of dispiriting for a lot of people in the community. So to maybe restate the conclusion uh, more factually than I've done, and then to talk to me about what your conclusion was based on their conclusion. Yeah, that was a very important meta-analysis that was published. It was done by a group of researchers at Johns Hopkins University. And um, what they did, interestingly, is they, they, they divided the studies into two groups, one that um, w- didn't use rigorous controls, and another group of studies, as you as you mention a much smaller group of studies that use much more rigorous control groups. And what they found is that the studies that didn't use rigorous control groups tended to find bigger effects for meditation. The studies that use really rigorous control groups found very little. Uh, And this was looking at the effects of meditation on specific um, uh, illnesses uh, and um, particularly uh, psychiatric illnesses, measures of anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, and uh, 
Uh, so the conclusion of these researchers was that when you look at the studies that use rigorous controls, you really don't see that meditation does any better than any other kind of treatment. Um, uh, and when it, so that was really the conclusion. Is that okay? Well, I have two responses to that. One is is that a damning result for for contemplative neuroscience writ large? And two, well, if so, it's not more effective than things like uh, antidepressants or exercise or whatever. Those things are effective. So. Doesn't that suggest that this is just another arrow we should have in our quiver when it comes to dealing with these things? Yeah, so so those are all important concerns. I mean, the one one of the major conclusions, though, which I think is really important for the field to take to heart, is that the days of doing uh, sort of crappy limited studies should be over. Mm. I mean, we really need to move on, uh, and um, uh, and those kind of studies are really a waste of time and money. Uh, it's better to focus on a fewer number of studies that are done well than um, studies that are not done well, because no one is going to take the studies that are not done well seriously anymore. Um, so, And the studies that are done well, uh, your uh, intuition is absolutely right. If these studies don't show any more effectiveness than, than a, another treatment that it was also found to be effective, that's okay. Uh, and... Um, uh, and we can potentially, one of the things that has not really been done, it, it very much at least, is looking at combination treatment. So if we add meditation to another treatment that already has been established to be effective, does that accentuate the positive benefit? But this, was a, this meta-analysis was looking at studies that, in, you said, investigated um, specific Ill, mental illnesses like depression, anxiety, mm -hmm. all of which I proudly uh, suffer from. Um, uh, but it wasn't necessarily looking at some of the effects of the on the brain that you no, looked at. And so it didn't look at all, didn't say that all meditation research is, is subpar. It specifically excluded basic research. The, the sort of stuff that, that we've been talking about prior has mostly been basic research on the effects of meditation on the gotcha, brain. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Um, what is your personal practice? Uh, well, my practice has gone through a lot of change and evolution over the course of the decades that I've been practicing. I really first began a daily practice in 1974, uh, which is when I attended my first meditation retreat in India with Goenka. And for many, many years, I was practicing in the Theravadan um, tradition, uh, doing basic... I'm going to just jump in on that, because Theravadan, just for those, uh, uh, I've had to explain this in almost every podcast we do, but is the, the sort of old school Buddhism, it was the literally old school, the, 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 the people who are f following what they believe are the closest to the sort of Buddha's and original instructions. Um, so anyway. Right. So uh, I was practicing in that tradition for many years and uh, deriving what I felt was a lot of benefit. Uh, and then uh, I met the Dalai Lama, as I said, in 1992, and I started to become more familiar with the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. At first, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, to be really bluntly honest, was a big turnoff to me because it involves a lot of ritual and it's complicated. And the, um, the older school, as you said, the Theravadan path, was much simpler. It had many fewer um, rituals and forms 
And uh, I, um, uh, I was attracted to that kind of simplicity and austerity in many ways. And I found the Tibetan uh, world to be just um, excessively uh, impenetrable. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so I was going along doing my Theravadan practice and um, still interacting with, um, with these Tibetans. And I should say that, you know, I, I've had a daily practice and it's been um, virtually every single day. I mean, I've, I've missed a few days, but, um, uh, and when my kids were younger, my practice uh, was uh, more sporadic uh, in that I was practicing daily, but, you know, often just for a few minutes a day. Uh, but um, I really have had pretty much a daily practice uh, since 1974. Uh, so I've been practicing a long time. Uh, um, and I would go on retreats periodically, um, typically once a year, uh, and found them to be of benefit. And retreat is a time when you can practice more intensively. Uh, and then as I learned more about the Tibetan world, things became a little bit more transparent and clear to me. Uh, and then as part of my research, actually, um, I met Mingyur Rinpoche. Actually, I met him first when uh, uh, he attended a Mind and Life meeting with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala, India, uh, in the year 2000. That was my first meeting with him. Um, and then a couple of years later, he came to my lab, and I picked him up from the Madison Airport um, and really still knew relatively little about him, but there was something about him that, um, attracted me and his presence and his demeanor. And, uh, uh, I, um, listened to a few instructions that he had given and there was a kind of simplicity that I was attracted to about his instructions, even though he was operating in the Tibetan world. And another thing that I felt strongly about was that while my practice up until that point was very valuable, um, there was a certain kind of heart opening, a warmth that I wasn't experiencing. And in the early days of my interest in um, contemplative uh, activities, when I was a graduate student at Harvard, I used to do Sufi dancing once a week, which was very ecstatic uh, and um, uh, and. You know, I'm a touchy-feely guy. I like to hug people. Uh, and I just didn't feel like uh, there was that, a lot of warmth uh, in what I was doing. Uh, and so, and I felt more of that in this other path. Uh, and so, um, and I think it's one of the things I always say is that one size does not fit all. Uh, and I think that's really important. And I think there are many different paths uh, that are um, very beneficial and different people uh, for because of their personalities, all kinds of individual differences do better with certain kinds of paths than others. And I think that uh, and so this is not about any particular path that's better uh, or not better. It's really individual preferences and what speaks to different kinds of people. But I needed I, I recognized that I needed more of that heart stuff. Um, and uh, and then when I got more involved in it, I, I really found that. I found uh, there there is an emphasis on, um, uh, on compassion, uh, and, um, uh, and that just really attracted me, and certain practices that involve devotion uh, that also attract me. Devotion, meaning prayer, prostration? Not, 
uh, well, prostration is part of it, um, but not not so much prayer, um, but prostration. And Who are you devoting yourself to? Uh, to the teachings. Uh, okay, so it's not to like a deity. No, it's not to a deity, but it's it's to it's basically saying that I am meditating, not primarily for my own benefit, but I'm meditating for the benefit of others. Do you think that's true? Really? I, I really do. I really do. You know, there are days when I, I, I live this crazy life, and there are days when I'll have meetings literally for 10 straight hours, and that's not an exaggeration. And in the morning, after I do my period of meditation, I'll look at my calendar, and I'll just very quickly, it doesn't take me more than two or three minutes to do this, I'll just go down and look at every meeting that I have um, that day, and just just in, for a few seconds reflect on how I can bring the the right stuff, be present, and be most helpful for each individual that I'm meeting with. And... Um, and it's you know it's a simple kind of thing and it's enormously helpful and I can I've I don't do this all the time but I can go through a day where I have ten straight hours of meetings and at the end of that period feel totally nourished and refreshed, um, and uh, and it's just I think it's a simple shift of intention, uh, and if you do that systematically it can change everything. Last question: There are a lot of metaphysical claims. Right at the forefront of of, of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, there there are deities in there. There is prayer in in this kind of meditation in this uh, school of of Buddhism. There, um, uh, rebirth is a huge part of it. I mean, Mingyur Rinpoche, your teacher, is the uh, is allegedly the 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 uh, reincarnation of not one but two uh, previous <laughs> Buddhist masters. And these guys, these guys, like um, uh, really got it going on. So. How do you, as a scientist, how do you feel about all that? So not, not to mention all this tantric meditation, you know, where they're like, I don't, I don't, I'm going to probably state this incorrectly, but I think the idea is that like you're kind of moving the bodily energies up through, and that may include like kind of semen, maybe up through the top of the channel and down through the other. I mean, whatever. I, I'm I'm probably butchering this, but there's a lot of what there's a lot of material in this school of Buddhism that that people like me would find weird. Um, how do you deal with that? People like me find it weird, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so as a scientist, I throw up my arms and I say, I have absolutely no idea. But what I try to do is say that, say that I have no idea uh, and that I just don't know, rather than immediately jumping to the knee-jerk reaction that that's just total crap. Uh, uh, and so... Um, I've had extensive discussions with the Dalai Lama about some of this, although a lot of the time, particularly in public meetings, he'll tell us this is Buddhist business, and he doesn't want to talk to scientists about that, but he's talked to us about that in smaller venues. Um, and uh, I, I, I sort of bracket that, and I don't let it bother me too much. I let it bother me a little. Um, uh, I, uh, I certainly don't... Um, uh, unabashedly embrace it, uh, and I don't. Uh, I don't reject it immediately either, uh, and I just put it in the category of total not knowing. And basically, I think there are so many important issues uh, that we can work on where there is a lot of common agreement uh, and shared understanding that we can be very helpful with without 
resorting to this other realm in uh, in this tradition where uh, I think there is some conflict between the modern scientific understanding and the Buddhist understanding. Thank you. Thank you for making time for this. Thank you for letting me probably take you uh, to a point where you're going to miss your next meeting uh, or be late for it. And thank you for your work, which has really just definitely changed my life and I think changed many people's lives. So really appreciate all of the above. And I want to thank you for everything that you're doing to help promote these ideas and bring them out into the public in a way uh, which is really uh, remarkably helpful. And now I tell people that if they're first uh, interested in meditation, that the first book they should read is 10% Happier. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. Downer. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest. And they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is the competition. Follow the competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. <laughs>